Okay, let's just uh, bow our hearts as we turn to God's word together. Well, Lord, we just thank you this morning again for your word. We thank you that you have given us this incredible gift, this treasure, Lord, that reveals to us all that we need to know. Uh, Lord, that it tells us, Lord, our origin, our destiny, and Lord, what we should be doing right now in these days in which we live in this earth. Father, we thank you that you've left us with instruction and Lord, clarity. So Father, help us to learn to listen and be obedient to your word. And Father, we just ask for this time this morning that you would speak to each one of us, Lord. Stir our hearts, we pray. May we be excited. May we be challenged, Lord. May we be moved by your Holy Spirit. Um, Lord, I pray that my words this morning would be just led and directed of you. And that, Lord, all of our hearts will be just open to receive what you have to say to us this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've come as far as verse 89 in this uh, study through Psalm 119. I just want to read to you a couple of uh, quotes from Spurgeon. I've kind of subtitled each of these sections for myself as I've been going through. And this one really, I suppose, is something along the lines of a a firm foundation or a sure footing. You know, we've been using the analogy of uh, rock climbing a number of times. And it's as if we've been going in this ascent, we've been climbing, and then, as we saw last time, everything came crashing down. It's almost like we just lost footing and slipped, and but we've come to a bedrock now. We've come to a place we can't go any lower than this. The Lord has got us, and we've used that verse from Deuteronomy a number of times, underneath of the everlasting arms. You know, whatever happens in our life, God will never let go of us. We might go through some very trying and difficult times, but he is always there. And he has begun a good work in us, and he will continue it. Spurgeon, just in regard to the first verse of this section, um, just says this. He says, the strain is more joyful. He says, for experience has now given the sweet singer a comfortable knowledge of the word of the Lord. And this makes a glad theme. After tossing about on a sea of trouble, the psalmist here leaps to shore and stands upon a rock. Jehovah's word is not fickle or uncertain. It is settled, determined, fixed, sure, immovable. Man's teachings change so often that there is never time for them to be settled. But the Lord's word is from all the same and will remain unchanged eternally. Some men are never happier than when they are unsettling everything and everybody, but God's mind is not with them. The power and glory of heaven have confirmed each sentence which the mouth of the Lord has spoken, and so confirmed it that to all eternity it must stand the same, settled in heaven where nothing can reach it. In the former section, David's soul fainted. But here, the good man looks out of self and perceives that that the Lord fainteth not, neither is weary, neither is there any failure in his word. I just want to read you another comment by another commentator. In this um, book that Spurgeon has compiled, he got a lot of other commentators' views and thoughts on the very verses that he was studying. Um, Let's see if I can find the uh, relevant... Yeah, uh, and this is uh, an individual by the name of uh, Joseph Thrupp uh, back in uh, 1860. He said this, uh, it was of this section really. He said, here is the climax of the delineation. So he, what he's implying here is that this has come, come to the lowest point. Uh, he said, and the, the pilgrimage has been reached now. This is place of the lowest um, falling. He says, we've arrived at the centre of the psalm and the thread of the connection is purposely broken off. The substance of the first eleven stoves have, has evidently been, hitherto has the Lord brought me. Shall it be that I now perish? 
To this, the eleven succeeding strove to make an answer. The Lord's word changes not. And in spite of all evil forebodings, the Lord will perfect concerning me the work that he has already begun. And I think that just kind of gives us an insight, a picture of where we are. We've gone on this journey, there's been this growing, this learning, um, you know, recognizing that we struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And there's been that, there's few moments of, uh, uh, excitement as it seems to be just just moving away from the things of the world and embracing more the things of God and yet as we saw last time what went from what seemed to be a real high spiritually um, it just came crashing down you know again just looking at those words in that previous section that we looked at last week my soul faints for thy salvation in my eyes fail for thy word I've become like a bottle in the smoke you know something that's just cracked and worthless and he asks, how many are the days of thy servant? You know, and the proud of the pits of me, everything he seems to have gone wrong. And, you know, again, I've said that the beauty of this psalm is it's so real, it's so honest. We've all been there in places where we thought we got it sorted out in our lives. We thought maybe that our walk with God was, was going well. Maybe we've managed to get some sort of spiritual discipline and we're now reading regularly and praying regularly. But all of a sudden, we just have a week when everything seems to fall apart. And you start to question why and how and you know, what can I do about it? And Well, this next section is like that, that bedrock. It doesn't go be, be, below this because now we start to build. And through this, from this section through to the rest of the psalm, it's just this wonderful ascent now as the Lord really starts to, to bless and to strengthen his servant. And I pray the same for you as we journey through together. Now, Again, the opening verse, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. I want to spend a little bit of time on this because there's some really profound ideas that come out of this. I mean, one of the the comments again is Spurgeon. He says that covenant settlements will not be removed, however unsettled the thoughts of men may become. Let us therefore settle it in our minds that we will abide in the faith of our Jehovah as long as we have any being. And God is a faithful God. All his promises are sure, and the promises we have in his word are sure as well. But the incredible statement that's being made here is that God's word is settled. It's secure, it's unchangeable. But notice, it's not just on earth, this is secured in heaven. Now, I don't know if you remember back in Exodus, where God gives Moses the details for the tabernacle. But they are built off a pattern of what already existed in heaven. So the tabernacle that Moses built and all the furnishings and furniture were just a pattern. They were a replica that Moses built on earth of what already existed in heaven. And I think this verse is revealing exactly the same regarding God's word. It's a copy of what already has been written and recorded in heaven. You see, God's word is outside of time. God's word speaks of the future as if it were the past. We we know from Isaiah... In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. You see, all that has happened through history is the unfolding of God's word, God's plan. You know, we tend to to think that we dictate the pace, but actually it's God who's in charge. Psalm 37 tells us that the steps of a good man are actually ordered of of the Lord. Proverbs tells us that man can't know his own way. Another telling verse in the book of Isaiah 
is in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. And it says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Everything in this world, everything that's material will be destroyed. Nothing in this material world will endure. We read about it in Peter where he talks about everything being loosened. That's literally down to the atomic level. Everything flying apart. Even today scientists don't really fully understand and comprehend how an atom can stay composed. How all the electrons and neutrons and these like char- all these charges that should repel each other manage to stay together. But of course we know, because Colossians tells us that, that Jesus is the one who created all things and holds all things together. And yet there's coming a day when the Lord will allow everything to be loosened. Now, if everything that is material is going to be literally blown apart, and yet the word is going to remain, we should see from that just a little glimpse that the word itself is not merely physical. You know, we do a lot today in terms of with computers of storing information. And there's this idea of now putting things up in the cloud. Well, the, the Bible is the ultimate cloud-based storage system. But it's stored in heaven. It's recorded in heaven. And, and, and this is where God's word has been settled. And when you realize that, nothing can change it. Because it's not about what happens on earth. God's word is settled in heaven. In Psalm 12, we read there, The words of the Lord are pure words. A silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I mean, God's words are pure. God's words shall be preserved, we're told. So if God's word is established in heaven, if it's unchangeable, if it can't be corrupted by man, if God has personally undertaken to preserve it, Well, then the critics of the Bible who would tell us that the Bible has been changed over the years, or it's been altered in any way, or that claim it's just a work of man, they're wide of the mark, very wide indeed. You see, we know that God has used the Jewish nation as a means to deliver his written word to us. In Romans 9.4, Paul makes exactly that point, that one of the blessings Israel had was that it was to them that were given the covenants and the promises and the law and so on. God used the Jews as a mechanism, amongst other things, but as a way of delivering his word to mankind. And he gave them this very solemn and and incredible responsibility. It's no surprise, therefore, to understand and to find out that they took it very seriously in regard to the copying of the written word of God, that which had been passed down to them. And this is absolutely unparalleled in history with any other ancient document. I mean, you can go to any historical document you want and you will find that there's been copying errors or there's been problems and, and so on. But the, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, lists over a dozen rules, I'm going to go through some of them in a moment, for copying of the Torah. Now, this was just the first five books, but the same applied to the rest of the Tanakh, the Old Testament that the Jews copied down. It's like a, a built-in security system to prevent any tampering or corruption to the text. And this meticulous process of, in a sense, hand-copying out each scroll would take typically about 2,000 hours. That's a full-time job for one year. Now, I just want to go through some of these things because these are the conditions and the, the regulations that were set that the Jewish scribes had to adhere to. Firstly, the parchment that they were to write on must be made from the skin of a clean animal. Okay, and that means, obviously, sorry, ceremonially clean. 
Okay, so um, not things that have been listed in the law as defiled, but so typically a calf or sheep skin or something like that. It must be prepared by a Jew only, and the skins must be fastened together by strings taken from clean animals. That's the, the first thing. Second thing, each column that they were to write, because they used to write in columns, a bit like we have in our Bibles today, each column must have no less than 48 and not more than 60 lines. So it's very much defined as to how much they could write. The entire copy must be first lined so that it could keep it exactly nice and neat. Remember back in school when you used to write the lines on the, with your pencil so you could get when you're writing? Well, they, that's exactly what they did. Some of us still do it today when we write. A scroll uh, of the Torah would be disqualified if even a single letter would be added. Imagine, you've just spent 1,999 hours on your last page and you just misspell something. And your, your boss walks in and goes, sorry, <laughs> and rips it up. Start again, please. But that's what they did. The scribe also would have to be a learned and pious Jew who'd undergone very special training and certification. All the materials, the parchment, the ink and the quill must conform to strict specifications and they were prepared specifically for the purpose of writing a Torah scroll. The scribe must not write even one letter into the Torah by memory, from heart. Everything had to be looked at, checked, and then written. You couldn't just go from what you thought you'd remembered. And they must have a second kosher scroll alongside at all times to compare with. The scribe must pronounce every word out loud before copying it from the correct text. So they've got their text, they must pronounce out loud before they then write it. Every letter must have sufficient white space surrounding it. If one letter touched another in any spot, it invalidates the entire scroll. If a single letter was so mild that it cannot be read at all or resembles another letter, whether the defect was as a result of the writing or due to a hole or a smudge or a tear or anything, again, it would invalidate the whole scroll. Each letter must be sufficiently legible so that an ordinary schoolchild could distinguish it from another. The scribe must put precise space between words so that one word will not look like two words or two words look like one word. The scribe must not alter the design of the sections and must conform to the particular line lengths and paragraph configurations. I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever, when you write a card to somebody and you write the, the, their name or something on the front of the card and you always kind of end up a little bit further to the right than you intended. Is that just me or is, do we all do that? And, you know, but for them, everything had to be exactly precise. The ink could only be black. And again, it had to be according to a special recipe. Now, there's another thing, that the scribe, before he wrote the name Elohim, which is God's name, first had to get up and wash his whole body. And the same again for writing the name Jehovah. And You can just go and do a little search if you want, if you've got a concordance, and see how many times God's name appears in the text. I mean, this individual was very hygienic, very clean, Every time he had to write God's name, he had to wash his whole body. Every Hebrew letter has got a numerical value that I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, very much like Greek, uh, which is another reason that God has used these languages um, as the, the medium through which to give his word to us. But every Hebrew letter has got a numerical value, and each column when completed must be added up, and the exact numerical value that was on the previous scroll must be on the one that you've just done. 
Each page also must add up numerically. As just a many, many other things. Uh, just one mistake on a sheet condemned the entire sheet. If three mistakes were found on any page, the entire manuscript was condemned. Again, just think of all the work. Now, one of the, the critics' favorite arguments is, oh, you can't trust the Bible, it's been changed. You know, and even at work, the, the Muslims I speak to, this is what they've been told. They've been told that the Bible has been altered and they can't be relied upon. Well, just consider this. There's 304,805 letters in the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. How many errors do you think may have crept in over a period of 1,900 years of copying that text out? Well, one scholar said this. He said, the fact is that after all the trials and tribulations, communal dislocations and persecutions, speaking of what happened to the Jewish people and has happened through the ages, only the Yemenite Torah scrolls contain any difference from the rest of the world Jewry. For hundreds of years, the Yemenite community was not part of the global checking system. And a total, get this, of nine letter differences are found in their scrolls. These are all spelling differences, and in no case did they change the meaning of the word. That's in 1900 years of these scrolls being copied out. And one group that were dissociated from the rest of the Jews had somehow managed to introduce just nine letter differences in 304,805 letters in 1900 years. See, God really has preserved his word. Now, there's a number of books that have been written that will demonstrate the divine inspiration of the Bible. And maybe we'll come back to it some other time and look at a, a study on some of these things specifically. Um, but I'd strongly recommend, if you can get a copy of it, is uh, Dr. Chuck Misler's Cosmic Codes. F.C. Payne's The Seal of God. And actually, we've got some at the back. Grant Jeffrey's Signature of God. Those three books, anybody that has any doubt that the Bible is of divine authorship, you cannot read those books and walk away with that position anymore. Because they prove conclusively that this book has come to us from outside our time domain. It really is God's word to his creation. But you know, we've got other books that demonstrate the accuracy and integrity of scripture. Now we've got books again on the back table over there. Uh, the series recently by Bill Cooper of uh, the Authenticity series, going through a number of the books in the Bible. There's a, a great book which you can actually get free online uh, in terms of the, the, the PDF of it by a man by the name of Robert Dick Wilson. This guy was incredible. We've mentioned him a number of times in the past. Um, the book is called Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament. And he says this, he says, For 45 years continuously I've devoted myself to one great study of the Old Testament. And he goes on. This guy was an incredible scholar. I mean, absolutely breathtaking. He could read and write loads of ancient languages that are not used today. He'd memorized the entire New Testament. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to memorize Psalm 119, and I'm almost, oh, well, I'm pretty much on track so far. But the whole of the New Testament, that's an incredible feat. But carries on, he says, The result of those 45 years of study which I have given to the text has been this. I can affirm that there is a, not a single page of the Old Testament concerning which you need have any doubt. What an incredible statement. Somebody spent 45 years. If somebody comes to you and says, oh, there's errors in the Bible, ask them how long they spent studying it. But, you know, evidence of 
faithful transmission of the Bible has been seen throughout the centuries and been confirmed by numerous discoveries that have been made, and not least back in 1946 with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm sure you're all very familiar. Now, back in AD 68, there were numerous manuscripts that were placed in these caves in Qumran, which is in the area of the Dead Sea in southern Israel. Now, the Romans came and were obviously intent on driving the Jews out and destroying the Jews at that time. So these documents were obviously placed in those caves to try and keep them safe. Now, when the Romans got there and found them, a lot of these documents and things were burnt and destroyed. But a number of fragments were left, and in one cave, and you probably remember the story, there was a shepherd boy out one day, he threw a stone up into a cave, as boys do, you get a stone, you've got to throw it, haven't you? Um, and it hit a, a jar or something, uh, this clay pot, and he just heard this chink so he kind of climbed up there and found all these these documents. Well, we know we've got a copy of Isaiah, which is the same as the Isaiah we have today, so we know that it's not changed, and many other Old Testament books and, and fragments and pieces of. But what is not mentioned, and you may not have heard this before, that there was a cave, they, they numbered each, each of the caves, but Cave 7, they found a number of fragments of New Testament books. Now this is in... AD 68, they were put there. They weren't put there any later than that because that was when the Romans came in and wiped them out. So we know that, that that's the, the, the date. And obviously, if they existed then, they may well have already been written before them. Now, what we've got there, amongst other things, are four copies of Mark's Gospel, or four fragments of portions of Mark's Gospel. So it's like a section of a page. So obviously, the Romans had come in, they tried to destroy everything, but they dropped bits and pieces on the floor. And a number of these these fragments were found on the steps leading into the cave. But the interesting thing is that each of the, the four fragments were, were on different parchment and written by different people, because you could just tell from the, the handwriting. Well, that means that Mark's Gospel was clearly in wide circulation by that time. Now, critics often would have us believe that these things were written later. Another interesting thing that is there is a fragment of a commentary on the book of Romans, which means that Romans was also written by then. And there's other things. Bill Cooper is working on a book at the moment, which will be coming out later this year, uh, or certainly early early part of next year, um, all about these discoveries that have been made and that academia has tried to silence They don't want you to know about these things. Now, it's just an interesting aside that some German archaeologists applied to Israeli authorities, and Bill Cooper was telling me this yesterday, to excavate further in Cave 7. And they were told by the Jewish authorities, I'm sorry, you can't do it. And they said, why? And they said, because the cave's no longer there. And they inquired, why? What's happened? It's eroded. Okay? Been there for 1,900 years. And all of a sudden, in the last 50 years or so, it's eroded. Really? Apparently, there's absolutely no evidence at the location that of any erosion whatsoever. It looks like what's happened is it's been intentionally destroyed. Why would the Jews do that? Well, because they don't want anybody promoting the New Testament that speaks about Jesus, who they've rejected. So it kind of all makes a lot of sense, but it's just very interesting. But this is what we see so often. People have tried to obfuscate or to hide the truth from people. And all the way through the ages. You know, that kind of skullduggery is nothing new. And Paul warned in 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. John, Peter and Jude all tackled the problem that existed even in the first century of people that would try and twist or amend or deny scripture. 
And in the early centuries, we find a lot of these ideas, the, the idea of Gnosticism, this special knowledge that certain people apparently had. And they came up with this idea that Jesus really wasn't the Christ. And so they ended up altering the manuscripts, the documents they had. There's, If you go to the British Library today, you'll find a copy of the Alexandrinus, one of the Greek, or sorry, one of the uh, Egyptian, uh, from Alexander in Egypt, uh, manuscripts that has, get, has got a lot of these corruptions in the text where they purposely tried to remove the, the deity of Christ. Now this leads on to a very interesting scenario and situation because we went through that period of time of the Dark Ages, you remember historically, and the average person in the, in the street, in the field, whatever, back in the day, they didn't have a copy of the scriptures, largely because the Roman Catholic Church didn't want people to have a copy of the scriptures. Because they knew full well what would happen if people started looking at what the Bible actually said. And of course, their worst fears were realized by a man named Martin Luther, who started reading the Bible. And when he read the Bible, he found that incredible verse in Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. And that sparked, of course, as we know, the Reformation. And that brought uh, an incredible transformation and change, and we're indebted to a number of people that lived during that time that really had a zeal and a passion for the Word of God, that believed that God's Word couldn't be obliterated, couldn't be destroyyed, and it should be accessible to all people. William Tyndale, the name that you should be familiar with, he ended up trying, he had this, this passion to translate the Bible into English. He ended up being martyred for it, he was burnt at the stake. He was uh, arrested and caught. But for a long time, he'd been just translating more and more of Scripture. One priest that encountered him one day knew that he was doing this and challenged him and basically said, you shouldn't be doing that. Tyndall hotly replied famously, if God spares my life before many years pass, I will make it possible for a boy behind the plough to know more Scripture than you do. Now, the funny thing today is that there's a lot of people out there that just have day jobs that know more scripture than most clergy. Now that may be a bit of a, a statement, it may be inflammatory in some senses, but you know, my experience of clergy is that a lot of them don't know a lot about the Bible. They've gone to Bible college, they've learned a lot about theology, and they've been told that this isn't really true, and that's not really true, and that didn't really happen. There's only... In fact, you can count on one hand the number of Bible colleges or seminaries in this country that teach creation. That teach that God is the one who created. The others will hold to some sort of theistic evolution or some other position. Or they'll simply sit on the fence and say, well, we don't really know. You kind of shouldn't be dogmatic about these things. Well, the Bible makes it very clear. God's word has been preserved. It won't be destroyed. Just want to read you a quote by uh, a man by the name of uh, Mr. Shelley. Uh, he uh, wrote a fantastic book called uh, Church History in Plain Language. He said this. Uh, in the following years, speaking of Tyndale, he said, Tyndale translated portions of the Old Testament and brought out an improved edition of the New Testament. Church officials continued to hound him. However, in 1536, he fell into their hands. After 17 months in prison, Tyndale went to his death at the stake. His dying prayer was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And that prayer was answered because the king in question was Henry VIII. And as you know, Henry had this situation where he wanted to uh, separate from the Catholic Church. 
Henry never had a desire to separate from Catholicism, but he didn't want to be ruled by the Pope. And so as a result of this, he uh, authorised and allowed initially a translation. It wasn't Tyndale's, that was something that was rejected. There was other versions that were done. There were some ones being done in Europe, in Geneva at that time. But eventually we got to the point that the, the Bible was given the royal sanction by Henry VIII to be translated. And then we went through another couple hundred turbulent years, years until obviously we get to the translation of the King James Bible. But throughout this time, the Bible is going out around the world. The Catholic Church hated this with a passion. Because people were now starting to discover what the Bible said. And just as Tyndale had, had said to that, that man, that other priest, the average person in the field pushing a plough, the average person with day jobs, were having copies of the scriptures made available to them. It wasn't something that there was just a copy of the Bible in the church, and only the priest could read it. Now everybody had access, and all of a sudden there started springing up around the world Bible societies that were producing Bibles and sending them around the world. But that led to the middle of the 1800s. A very interesting situation occurred. Because all of a sudden, coincidentally, within a year of each other, two other manuscripts were discovered. Now one had already been previously discovered, but then forgotten again. But a man by the name of Tischendorf ended up going to a monastery down in Sinai, in the Sinai Peninsula, not where the real Mount Sinai is, but he went to this monastery that's there and discovered this manuscript which seemed to be a copy of the Bible. It became known as Sinaiticus. And it was then hailed as being the oldest copy of the Bible that we had. And it led to other individuals, Westcott and Holt and others, using this to retranslate the New Testament. Within a year, the Vatican suddenly published their version. They had one which is referred to as Vaticanus. That resides in the Vatican today. Sinaiticus, part of it is up in the British Library in London. You can go and see it. I went up there during the week just to look through the glass at it. But these documents, for now, the last 150 years plus, have been hailed as being the most authentic and authoritative versions of the Bible. Well... On the back table, we've got some copies of this, and I would encourage you to get a copy, because this is a real game changer. This is a, the, the latest book by Bill Cooper. It's called The Forging of Codex Sinaiticus. And I don't want to destroy the, the book for you, because it's still well worth reading. But the evidence that Bill has uncovered, and this isn't just stuff that he's found, this is stuff that's been known for a while, but has been kept very, very quiet. This version of the Bible, and including, uh, in fact, you may find, you may have seen this before, if you go to the end of Mark's Gospel, you'll find that the last 16 verses, there's sometimes a question mark, and it will say something like, not in the most authoritative manuscripts. What it means is it's not in Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And there's other portions of the text where there's question marks. And if you've ever seen in your Bible where it says, not in the most ancient manuscripts, or not in the most authoritative manuscripts, or sometimes this portion was added later, any of those things you find, they're all as a result of this trans- retranslation of the New Testament text from those two manuscripts. Now, the incredible thing is that between those two manuscripts, there's over 9,000 discrepancies between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. So they, they hardly agree with each other. The 
former dean of Chichester Cathedral many years ago, a man by the name of uh, John William Burgon said this. He said, it's in fact easier to find two consecutive verses in which these two manuscripts differ, the one from the other, than to find two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. He was silenced amongst many others that have tried to stand up to this popular tide. But the truth of the matter is that Sinaiticus was actually a document that was written back in the 1800s. It was originally written as a gift to be given to a Russian czar to thank him for his support for the church. But somehow it didn't quite end up with him and it found its way down to this monastery in Sinai where it got corrupted, where it had people writing over the top of things. And this is one of the biggest frauds that's been perpetuated in our time because that portion I mentioned at the end of Mark's Gospel, in both the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, the leaves, the pages in the codex, in the these, these bound leaves of parchment, or um, vellum, sorry, they've been intentionally removed, rewritten, without that section in there. Purposely designed to remove the ending of Mark's Gospel. Let's just... Just look at what that text actually says, just so you see what the intention is behind this. At the end of Mark's Gospel, you get to verse 8, and it ends with, verse 8 says, And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed, neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. And that's where those modern versions, those modern manuscripts stop. And then it goes on to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And he appeared alive to people afterwards. Verse 14, he appeared um, unto the eleven as they sat at meat and goes on. It's speaking of the resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about the things that his disciples would do. There are many other examples where the text has been intentionally altered. Now, as I say, what happened is that the Roman Catholic Church, and you can read Bill's book to get the details, and it's very well documented, intentionally set out to have another individual, unknowingly to him, to write this manuscript that they would then use, they had this published, and then within a year published their own version and now promoted it as authentic. Both of those documents are nowhere near the age that is suggested. And there's lots of evidence to prove that. Even so much as this, the vellum that it's written on is indeed old, but it's the text is written around the wormholes and so on there, clearly showing that the text was written on an old document. But it's just a, an incredible deceit. What it means, and I'm sorry if this upsets people and I've said these things before, but you've got to face the facts on this. It means that every modern version of the Bible, from a New Testament perspective particularly, is based upon a Vatican-inspired forgery. If you want to look at the details, I encourage you to, to go and have a look. My point in saying all of this, because we're at this particular point in Psalm 119, is that God's word will not be corrupted. We still have a copy of the scriptures as God intended us to have it. And despite the, the best efforts of man to try and obfuscate and to hide the truth and to deny the deity of Christ and so many other issues that come through all of these things, Nothing that they've done has succeeded. God's word is settled in heaven. Let's carry on in Psalm 119. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth and it abides. You know, and God is faithful. He's been faithful with his word. 
And the, the, the theme switches in a sense from that which is in heaven to that which is on earth. But notice the difference because the word is established forever whereas the earth simply abides. You see, as we said earlier, heaven and earth will pass away. But God's word is eternal. Yeah, God has been faithful because he's kept the earth spinning, the sun shining, the ecosystem balanced, oxygen levels where they should be, the hydro system functioning and so on. And despite all the concerns ecologists have today, we're doing okay. And I know there's fears and all sorts of other things about what's going to happen to the climate. That's on one side. On the other side, you'll find just as many competent scientists meteorologists and geologists and all sorts of different professions and fields that will tell you these things are just cycles. They just go round and round. God is still in control. God has established the earth and it abides. And these rules and these laws that God has set in motion, again, God has been faithful. These things don't just fade away. Verse 91, They continue this day according to thine ordinances. All of thy servants. You see, God is the one that has set the laws in motion. And this is one of the big problems for evolutionists and those that would say we're just the result of random processes. Where do all the laws in the universe come from? How can you explain these things without there being design and intent behind all of it? But interestingly, the the ordinances that God has put in in place do what they're supposed to do. They're obedient to him. You know, often we end up moaning and complaining about the things the Lord calls us to do and asks us to do. Oswald Chambers just made this following comment, which is just great. He says, the idea is not that we do work for God, that we're, but that we are so loyal to him that he can do his work through us. I reckon on you for extreme service, with no complaining on your part and no explanation on mine. I mean, do you think the sun or the moon or gravity or any other law or rule in the universe complains? Of course it doesn't, but when we know so much, when God has given us so much, why do we complain about the things that God calls us to do? Verse 92, unless thy law be my delights, I should then have perished in my affliction. And he brings it back down now to the personal level. But he's already spoken about God's law, the way that God's law and God's word has been established, that it's a, a bedrock that we can build on, we can trust in. And despite the best attempts of man, it will not be destroyed. And he says, unless thy law had been my delights. Which means his, God's law had been his delights. But he's saying, if I hadn't had that to cling to, well then I'd have perished in my affliction. Now, we've talked already about that affliction and very probably this was the result of David's sin with Bathsheba. This is the, the situation he's referring to. And for all of us, the affliction that we experience very often is of our own doing. Sometimes it comes from other people and there's been a lot that we've seen already that the psalmist is addressed in regards to the way that the wicked and the proud and so on have dealt with him. But if it hadn't been for God's word, where would you be now? Where would our lives be? If we didn't have that anchor to hold on to. In Psalm 32, one of uh, the Psalms of David, he says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. The sailor. I acknowledge my sin unto thee and my iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and now forgave us the iniquity of my sin. Selah. That word selah, by the way, just, it's kind of, just pause, reflect, meditate, think about this. Oh, David just explaining that, you know, when he'd allowed sin into his life, he says, my bones waxed old. It had a physical effect on me and sin will do that. Sin isn't just something that goes on in your head. 
It's in the heart, it's in the body, it affects you. People that harbour bitterness end up in all sorts of physical difficulties. It does affect you. There's been studies done to show the danger of pornography. It doesn't, it's not just a passing thing that you can dismiss. Any aspect of sin that you care to consider has an effect. And the psalmist again says, unless thy law have been my delights, just consider where we be without God's law. He says, I should then have perished in my affliction. We realize how important God's word is and how much we need to hold on to it. And then he goes on and says, I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. Literally, thou hast made me alive. I just want to read to you just briefly from Spurgeon. He says, forgetfulness is a great evil in holy things. We see here the man of God fighting against it and feeling sure of victory because he knew the life-giving energy of the word in his own soul. That which quickens the heart is sure to quicken the memory. It seems singular that he should ascribe quickening to the precepts and yet it lies in them and in all the words of the Lord alike. It is to be noted that when the Lord raised the dead, he addressed to them the word of command. He said, Lazarus, come forth, or made arise. He says, we need not fear to address gospel precepts to dead sinners, since by them the Spirit gives them life. Remark that the psalmist does not say that the precepts quickened him, but that the Lord quickened him by their means. Thus he traces the life from the channel to the source and places the glory where it's due. I like that. God's word has quickened us. God has used it to make us alive. On to the next verse, on to verse 94. He agrees, I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. Once again, let me just read to you a comment. He might not have attained to all the holiness which he desired, but he had studiously aimed at being obedient to the Lord, and hence he begged to be saved even to the end. A man may be seeking the doctrines and promises and yet be unrenewed in his heart. But to seek the precepts is a sure sign of grace. No one ever heard of a rebel or a hypocrite seeking the precepts. The Lord had evidently wrought a great work upon the psalmist and he besought him to carry on to completion. Saving is linked with seeking. Save me for I have sought. And when the Lord sets the seeking, he will not refuse us the saving. Isn't that wonderful? You know, whenever we're in difficult situations, seek the Lord. He won't refuse us. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. And again, we can make more of this, and I'll try and expand some of these things in the notes when we finally get to the end of the study. But that, I am thine. It's that appeal to the fact that, Lord, you've purchased me. I'm now yours. Because I'm now yours, it's your responsibility to look after me. Verse 95, the wicked have waited for me to destroy me but I will consider thy testimonies. You see, it's not just that I was dead in trespasses and sin, that I had had to be afflicted to come to the knowledge that I needed a saviour, but also that I've had real adversaries who have sought my destruction. And life really is a, a mindful, because we're not just battling against ourselves, we're battling against real adversaries that would seek to do us spiritual harm. But we need a, a map for guidance. And that's exactly what God has given us. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. Lord, I want you to direct me. I want you to show me where I should go. I have seen the end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. 
Now once again we could spend a long time on this, but I just want to highlight the fact that he's looking ahead at where we started in the psalm of what God is going to do in him and in you and in I and anyone that is born again. That one day we will awake in the likeness of Jesus. That's the the end game. That's where we're going. One day we will awake and we will be transformed. These bodies that are still struggling with iniquity, still yearning sometimes after things of this world. That will all be gone. This corruption will put on incorruption. And for eternity, we will be with the Lord. That is the end. That's the perfection that we're looking toward. Just five minutes. We'll just finish the next section because I want to get us ready to go into the, the, the following section the previous week. Verse 97. Oh, how I love thy law. Is my meditation all the day. Now, my just challenge to you this morning, is that your, pri- that your cry and your prayer? Is that what you're saying to the Lord? That you love his law? Do you get to the end of the day and kind of want to read the Bible again? Do you find yourself during the day just wanting to read some scripture? You know, he says, it is my meditation all the day. Now, again, I keep encouraging you, and you're going to sound like a broken record, I know, but just take a verse of this psalm and read it in the morning. Read it again in the uh, mid-morning. Read it when you wake up. Read it mid-morning. Read it lunchtime. Read it in the afternoon. Read it when you're getting to the end of your working day, whatever your work entails. Read it in the evening and read it when you go to bed. We're going to find a verse later on that says, seven times. Seven times. A day. David thought upon the things of God. And that's what we should be doing. Just making God's word our focal point for everything. And honestly, it's been such a blessing to me as I've tried to memorize these verses because I have to keep going over and over and over. But what a blessing in doing that. Verse 98. Thou, through thy commandments, has made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. There's a verse in Jeremiah that says they have rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom do they have? That's true. You know, if you reject God's word, what wisdom do you really have? And you may have come across people that come across as being very, very wise from a worldly perspective. But if they've rejected God's word, what wisdom is in them? And you may find people that have doctorates and degrees and all sorts of things. Like In, in my day job, I interview a whole range of people. I've interviewed some people with degrees that have been brilliant. I've interviewed some people with degrees that have been hopeless. I've interviewed some people without degrees that have been brilliant. I've interviewed some people without degrees that have been hopeless. You know, just because you have a a piece of paper or a certificate or something, it doesn't necessarily mean you're wise. In fact, real wisdom comes from fearing the Lord. Through my commandments thou has made me wiser than my enemies. And you know, God gives us such an incredible wisdom when we start to walk with him and trust him and follow him and read his word. And of course, it states there, for they are ever with me. You know, we just get over it. We've got to accept the fact that we are going to have people always with us that are going to be antagonistic toward the position and the life that we have chosen. That's the way it is. And they will try and tell us that we are wrong. But sometimes you find yourself in conversations where you hear people talking and you kind of know that there's no point engaging in that conversation because it would be casting pearl before swine. Sometimes the Lord stirs us and we are to witness. But other times we just have to walk away. Arguing with a fool is not a good thing and Proverbs gives us lots of instruction on that. Verse 99, I have more understanding than my teachers for thy testimonies are my meditation. This is true. 
If you trust and read and love and rely on God's word, if you meditate on God's word, God will make you wiser than your teachers. Now, from the age of 13, I really started reading the Bible. I may have said this before, but when I was young, my mum used to give us pocket money if we were to read books. Now, my sister saw this as a kind of a money-making opportunity, and she read loads of books to the point that we'd be on holiday. And we, 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 there was, we were going through Cheddar Gorge once. Have you ever been through Cheddar Gorge? And you go, wow. She didn't. She was just like head down in book. And we're going, look out the window, Katie, look at it. And she's going, no, hang on. But she used to make money out of reading those books. I didn't. I didn't read a single book until I read the Bible. But suddenly I read the Bible and that's just what I wanted. And so year after year I started reading the Bible. I got to school. I was actually at my, my secondary school at that point. And the RE teacher wasn't a Christian, as many RE teachers are not. And all the way through my school there, I kept challenging her with things that she would bring up in a class. So I was thinking, well, actually, that's not what the Bible says. Or, And of course, it was a slightly different time. We didn't have so many other religions and things being presented to us at that point. So a lot of the time, it was talking around Christian ideas and, and thoughts. Well, some years later, I was invited to speak at a church back in, in Kent. And my previous RE teacher was there. And since that point, she'd become a Christian. And she made a point of coming up to me and thanking me. You know, this verse says that I have more understanding than my teachers, but thy testimonies are my meditation. I also had the privilege of teaching the deputy headmaster of another local school. I mean, he was a, he still is, he's a great man, he's very learned. If I'm not mistaken, I think his key subjects were English and history. Um, looking to my wife who, yeah, geography, okay. But he, he just, very, very bright man, lovely man. But I had the privilege of teaching him the Bible for a number of years. So again, God's word really does make a difference in all sorts of ways in your life. Verse 100, I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. You know, you can go and you can find throughout scripture people that were looking forward to what God was going to do. We sit here now with the whole of scripture given to us. All that God has settled in heaven has now been revealed. We have the entirety of God's word. And the things that the likes of Daniel and Elijah and Noah and David and all these people look forward to, we know. Do you not, do you know that not a single one of them had the Holy Spirit indwelling them in the way that we do? Yes, the Holy Spirit came upon people and David indeed was full of the Holy Spirit. But David knew the danger that he could sin like Saul had done before him and lose the Holy Spirit. That's why in Psalm 51, David prays, Lord, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You and I will never have to pray that prayer. We have been given the Holy Spirit forever. What an incredible gift we have. Understanding more than the ancients, we have the whole counsel of God. So many of those people that we read of in Scripture were trying to piece it together. They were looking forward to what was to come. We find in Ephesians, Paul makes it very clear, I'm not going to go there now, but that God has demonstrated his wisdom to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places by the existence of the church. It's like all of a sudden we get to the church and Jesus builds his church and the principalities and powers go, that's what it was all about. Now I see. One of the books we've got at the back there. Destined for the Throne by Paul Bilheimer. He makes a comment that the whole purpose of the universe and all therein was to produce and prepare an eternal companion for Jesus. Bride of Christ. Of which you and I have the privilege of being. 
That was God's intention. And we are part of that. But the ancients, they looked toward these things. They didn't have it like we have it. So the psalmist carries on and says, I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep thy word. And isn't that what we want to do now? When we start to realize how important God's word is, it's not just a book that gives us religious instruction. This is a book that gives us life, that gives us knowledge, that gives us wisdom, that gives us clarity. And it's settled in heaven. Again, just the magnitude of that thought. that This isn't just the work of men. This is God's word settled in heaven before even the foundation of the world that we now have in our hands. So he says, I've refrained my feet from every evil way. That's a choice. I would add to that, that it's not a, a resolution that we would make. This, I'm going to make a determined effort to do this because it's God's grace. God is the one that is doing this. It's already God's word that has led this change in his life. He says, that I may keep thy word. Because I want to adhere to and be obedient to the things that God reveals in his word. And there's so much instruction about how we should walk, how we should live, how we should speak, the kind of company that we should keep. Verse 102, I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. I mean, I, I don't know about you, I, there's a number of great Bible teachers and things that over the years I've grown up listening to. I'd have loved just to have a moment to sit under Chuck Smithsman at ministry. I've listened to a lot of his teaching audio, but it must have been wonderful to be there on those, those sessions when he was teaching. I have had the privilege of sitting there before Chuck Misler, another great Bible teacher. I've got to ask him questions. And there's others that I've got to listen to, but there's still yet more. I mean, what would it have been like to, to be in a, a sermon with Spurgeon? To sit and listen to him speak? Or Wes, uh, Wesley or Whitfield? Or these kind of individuals? Well, look what you've been given. I've not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. God himself, the greatest teacher of all, has personally undertaken to teach you. It's not me, it's not Barry that's teaching you. God wants to teach you. Verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jesus said, didn't he, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And this is more important to us than our food. You know, most of us don't tend to go through the day without missing our food. We certainly don't go through the day not eating and not even thinking about it. There are occasions maybe that you choose to fast and that's a good thing to do. But boy, by mid-morning your tummy's telling you. Well, why isn't it that way with God's word? Why aren't we in that place where we just have this yearning and this burning? How sweet are thy words to my taste. It's sweeter than honey to my mouth. And that's how God's word should be. And I pray that God is doing this work in you, that you are starting to fall in love with his word. And then he concludes, concludes and says, for this section, through thy precepts I get understanding. I get it. Lord, I understand it because of that which you have given me. Because of your precepts. Therefore I hate every false way. And what I was sharing with you this morning does make my temperature go up because I get very agitated when I start to see people that have intentionally tried to undermine God's word. But I love God's word. Of course, they're never going to succeed. And yet, sadly, there have been many, many people that have been led away and deceived by all sorts of lies that 
the devil has foisted upon the minds of men. But we do hate every false way. Once you come into contact with the truth, everything else leaves you cold, very cold indeed. We'll leave it there for this week. Next week we try and pick up, we've got one of the most well-known verses in the psalm. I believe our children are going to be coming and singing to us as well. Psalm 105. My word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We'll start from there next week. But please read ahead if you can during this week. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just thank you. That, Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Lord, I thank you that it is not about man. It's not about us or what we can do. It's not about our ability to try and preserve your words. Because, Lord, you have undertaken to do this. And, Lord, your word is settled. It will never be changed. Oh, and, Lord, I just praise and thank you because it's your word that tells me of your grace. It's your word that tells me that you are a saviour who is willing to forgive me and cleanse me of my sin. It's your word that tells me that I can have an eternity with you. And Lord, the thought that any of those things could be altered or changed or could perish is frightening. So to know that your word is settled in heaven where no man can touch it, all these promises are sure and secure in you. Lord, what a comfort that is. So, Lord, I pray this morning you give each one of us a greater and deeper love for your word. Lord, may we want to just read your word because it brings us life. It gives us understanding. Oh, Lord, we just thank you for this time. Watch over us. Keep us close to you, we pray, as we go into this week ahead of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.